This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to bring you uh, a piece that took quite a bit of doing, but I think uh, is going to prove its worth. We traveled to Los Angeles not once but twice to interview actor Norman Lloyd. You might know him from his portrayal of Dr. Auslander on the classic 80s television series St. Elsewhere. But we're talking about a man who made a name for himself in the 1930s working with Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. Alfred Hitchcock made him the title character in his first appearance in a motion picture. He later produced and directed Alfred Hitchcock Presents on television. Oh, and by the way, he was a personal friend of Charlie Chaplin. You can bet Mr. Lloyd has some stories, and we'll delve into some of those in our second segment today. Let's begin today's show, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 2nd of June. It was on June 2nd in 1851 that Maine joined a trend of outlawing the consumption of alcohol. This statewide ban, prompted by a growing temperance movement and prohibition politicians, would culminate eventually in the 1919 passage of the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. A spectacular failure, if there ever was one. We hope sometime in the next uh, two months to bring you Daniel Ockrent to talk about his wonderful book on prohibition. On this date in 1873, work began on the first line of San Francisco's famous cable car system was designed by English-born engineer Andrew Smith Halliday. The first train ran less than two months later. Today, the cable car is a major tourist attraction and one of the emblems of the city and is, I believe, the only moving national monument in the United States. And Red Letter Day in the history of radio. In 1896, the world's first patent for a radio communications device was filed in Britain by Guglielmo Marconi. The Italian-born inventor's wireless telegraph apparatus marked the beginnings of radio and telecommunications. On June 2nd in 1897, rumors that writer Samuel Clemens had died at the age of 61 were squelched with publication in the New York Journal of the kind of quip that earned Mark Twain his reputation for succinct humor. Said Twain, the report of my death was an exaggeration. On this date in 1925, as various expeditions reached and explored the Earth's poles, Canada, I did not know this, claimed all land between Alaska and Greenland, which I suppose is why today Canada is the world's second largest nation after Russia. Unfortunately, quite a bit of it is land between Alaska and Greenland. On June 2nd of 1947, after escalating violence between Hindus and Muslims had erupted into riots and caused thousands of deaths in the two years since the All India Congress had failed to reach an accord on ministers, the new government convinced Great Britain that partition of India along religious lines was necessary. Viceroy Louis Montbatten announced the plan to create the independent Muslim state of Pakistan and allow Hindus to be the ruling majority in the rest of India. As we mentioned on last week's program, this may have been the greatest mistake of post-World War II diplomacy. Of course, the division of Palestine along religious lines is right up there, too. 
You know, if you've never seen uh, that great movie, Gandhi, back to circa 1982, dear listener, I recommend uh, that you check it out. It uh, does tell the sad story of how Gandhi worked very hard to retain the state of India as a multi-religious political entity. Unfortunately, he failed in that goal. And on a happier British note, it was on June 2nd in 1953 that Queen Elizabeth II was crowned in Westminster Abbey in the presence of many Commonwealth dignitaries. Elizabeth had become heir to the throne in 1936 when her uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated in order to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson, which made her father King George VI, who I understand had a bit of a speech problem. All right, today's quotes and quips come from the Daily Beast slash Newsweek, starting with columnist Stephen L. Carter, making the case that torture can produce good intelligence, said, What we do know is that information that has come from repugnant methods has at times proved correct and even useful. Which was rather intelligently answered by Senator John McCain, who said, I know from personal experience that the abuse of prisoners often produces bad intelligence. And saying that, McCain was denying that torture led the U.S. to Osama bin Laden. Which, as far as we've been able to deduce in this program, is correct. Bin Laden was not killed owing to information produced under torture. Our quips of the day come, first of all, from a spokesman for Facebook, who said, No smear campaign was authorized or intended. Referring to Facebook's choice to hire public relations hitmen, Burston Marsteller, to pitch anti-Google stories to journalists. Which also caused the Daily Beast technology editor Dan Lyons to note, Here were two guys from one of the biggest PR agencies blustering around Silicon Valley like a pair of Keystone cops. Lyons broke the news of the two companies' shenanigans. The two companies being Burston Marsteller and Facebook. Our jokes of the day, which oddly enough also comes in the form of a quote, is from that Paul Slansky book, Idiots, Hypocrites, Demagogues, and More Idiots. Citing at least one misconception Pat Robertson has about the fairer sex, the book quotes him saying in 1992, The feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women. It's about a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. To which we have to add here at Radio Parallax, Mr. McMillan, I did not know that. And another bonus from that same, uh, same book. We have to comment upon the severely impaired imagination of Paul Wolfowitz, who said, testifying before Congress in 2003, just before the start of the Iraqi war, at which time he was Deputy Defense Secretary, Wolfowitz said, It's hard to conceive that it would take more forces to provide stability in post-Saddam Iraq than it would take to conduct the war itself and to secure the surrender of Saddam's security forces and his army. Hard to imagine. (laughs) Well, it wasn't very hard for Radio Parallax to imagine. But alas, we don't work for the Pentagon. Our stat of the day is that Hollywood will release a record 27 sequels this year. That total encompasses the highest number of Part 4 films ever, including new versions of Mission Impossible and Pirates of the Caribbean. But wait, it gets worse. There will be five fifth 
sequels, including one to X-Men, two seventh sequels, including one to Planet of the Apes, and an eighth Harry Potter movie. It's amazing all that innovation and creativity down in Hollywood, isn't it? All right, let's take a leap right into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for cracking down legally, Venezuelan style, in view of the fact that for the first time in Venezuelan history, a driver has had his license suspended. Yes, apparently speeding and drunk driving are rarely punished in car-loving, oil-rich Venezuela, where gas sells for about 12 cents a gallon, but authorities felt they had to make an example of bus driver Ramon Pata, who was caught speeding in a bus that was not only carrying too many passengers, but was also missing one of its rear wheels. Said National Police Chief Luis Fernandez, this is a totally new act. For the first time in Venezuela, we are suspending a driving license. You know, I don't know, Chief Fernandez. Gets you on a pretty slippery slope. So please, as always, use discretion. All right, it was also a bad week for meat lovers in view of the fact that North Carolina restaurants are no longer allowed to serve medium-rare hamburgers. Yes, apparently under a new state ordinance, all ground beef products must be cooked to an internal temperature of 155 degrees Fahrenheit or medium to kill off bacteria. The Week magazine quoted rare burger fan Steve Elliott saying that some restaurants will take his order, but they'll ask if you're a cop or food inspector first. And by the way, we have it on good authority that you can still get a rare hamburger in Venezuela. And speaking of driving, it was an ugly week for driving while female last week when Saudi vice police arrested a woman who posted a video of herself driving a car. The video by Manaf al-Sharif, who had learned to drive while she lived in the United States, got more than 500,000 hits in three days. That's before authorities took it down. Al-Sharif is leading a movement that encourages Saudi women to take the car keys on June 17th and flout the ban on women's driving. For that, she faces charges of, quote, besmirching the kingdom's reputation abroad and stirring up public opinion, unquote. In response, Human Rights Watch said it was not her driving, but her arrest that opens Saudi Arabia to condemnation and, in fact, to mockery around the world. And we would note, in Venezuela's defense, they do allow women to drive, whether they're sober or not. From the Only in America file, we have this item. Goldman Sachs set last week said it has hired former Senator Judd Gregg who was, by the way, an architect of legislation that authorized the rescue of the largest U.S. banks in 2008. Well, they've hired him as an advisor just four months after he retired from the Senate. What a coincidence. Greg joins a group of 17 international advisors providing counsel to the fifth largest U.S. bank, according to the firm in a statement. Judd Gregg represented New Hampshire for three terms after serving as the state's governor and a member in the House. 
he was one of the leading lawmakers drawing up legislation that authorized the Troubled Asset Relief Program to bail out banks. As a Republican on the Senate Banking Committee, he opposed proposals to separate banks' derivatives units, which might have saved a bit of trouble. Another story we can't, re- we can't resist. According to New Scientist magazine, legislation introduced by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I in the 6th century is now the latest weapon in the battle to force the U.S. government to curb climate change by cutting CO2 emissions. Guided by NASA climate scientist Jim Hansen, a charity representing young Americans last week invoked the ancient public trust doctrine in a lawsuit against the U.S. government and several of its agencies, including the EPA and Department of Energy and Department of Commerce. According to Julia Olson, director of the Our Children's Trust charity, which brought this legal action in San Francisco on May 4th, the public trust law says that common resources like water and air are held in trust by the government for future generations. Olson said that the doctrine was later enshrined in the English Magna Carta, in 1215, and was exported to the U.S. in 1776. It's been invoked for centuries to pressure governments to protect public resources. Personally, I hope they get somewhere with this. Of course, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California, all of whom, so far as we know, endorse the public trust doctrine. Here's a story we can't quite vouch for the authenticity of, but it is irresistible. Apparently, a Canadian couple is keeping their newborn child's gender a secret in order to make the world, quote, a more progressive place, unquote. Supposedly, David Stocker and Kathy Wittrick say that four-month-old Storm will reveal his or her gender only when Storm decides Storm would like to share adding that it's obnoxious to identify a child's gender on the basis of their genitalia. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought your genitalia kind of determined your... Oh, never mind. David Stalker was quoted as saying, if you really want to get to know someone, you don't ask what's between their legs. Which, frankly, is probably some sound advice for people who go to cocktail parties or maybe take long bus rides. You know, and as a public service, this might be a good time for Radio Parallax to do some follow-up on an item we talked about some time back, expiration dates on drugs. Article in the Chicago Tribune, widely reprinted by Alexia Elejalde Ruiz, noted that there are telltale signs that a product has gone bad, moldy bread, clumpy milk, and a layer of fur blanketing the cream cheese. But uh, what about the toothpaste sitting in your pantry for years? What about those condoms waiting optimistically in your nightstand for longer than you wish? Yes, indeed, many products carry expiration dates, but thrifty shoppers often wonder if they really must toss dated items that still seem perfectly fine. Well, as we mentioned on this program previously, the FDA tends to be very conservative in this matter. An expiration doesn't necessarily at all mean that the product turns putrid or ineffective once the date passes. Expiration dates tend to be very conservative to account for a wide range of storage conditions and consumer handling. But let's talk about three items. Anything with sunscreen reportedly can change or degrade with time and extreme temperatures, which diminishes the effectiveness of the sunscreen. 
But uh, Dr. John Bailey, scientist with the Personal Care Products Council, said if the product still looks, smells, and feels right, you can probably use it for a year past expiration. Adding, of course, that if you're very fair-skinned or burn easily, it might be best to abide by the actual date. And when it comes to batteries, there's apparently no reason not to use an old battery unless there's visible damage to the can, according to a, a spokesman for Duracell, which prints a seven-year shelf life for its alkaline batteries as a guarantee rather than an expiration. Reportedly, the only consequence that an older battery might have is just a bit shorter life. And by the way, the tip from Duracell is don't store batteries in the refrigerator or freezer. Reportedly, room temperature is best for quality and lifespan. And finally, when it comes to condoms, and you know, that's a phrase we don't get to say often enough, because the latex in condoms does degrade over time, become brittle, and thus more prone to breakage, the FDA requires that they carry an expiration date up to five years from the date of packaging. That's established by testing and ensures their integrity. Storing condoms for prolonged periods at a hot environment like windowsill or glove compartment, although it's noted a wallet is usually okay, can speed up deterioration, while storing in a cool, dry place could make them usable well past the expiration date. All right, let's wrap up this segment uh, with a discussion of something that's often talked about. That is that California has too many regulations for businesses. I would say as a business owner, my problem with California regulations are is that they are sometimes insane. And I think what I'll do is a quote at length from a, an Economist article from the May 21st issue about red tape in California. The article is about a woman, Homa Dashtaki, who emigrated from Iran in 1984 and moved to Orange County. They apparently brought with them a secret from the old country, how to make really good yogurt. Noted the magazine, Miss Dashtaki spotted a marketing opportunity. She decided to produce yogurt, marketing it under the name The White Mustache, inspired by one sported by her dad. Noted the magazine, alas, after three months of operation and about $300 in revenues per week and no profit at all, she encountered that other American tradition, that of red tape. Although she had spent a year getting the required permits from Orange County, she had, it turned out, yet to make the acquaintance of the milk and dairy food safety branch of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, the CDFA. So one Saturday morning last March, she got a call from the CDFA and was told to shut down or risk prosecution. Now keep in mind they were producing artisan yogurt by the old country methods, uh, apparently in the kitchen of an Egyptian restaurant. They uh, kept the volume rather tiny of about 20 gallons a week, which was for sale only at local farmers' markets. Article quotes Mish Dashtaki and her father, saying that their yogurt is safe. It's always been safe, both in Iran and here in America. Nevertheless, she was eager to demonstrate the safety of her process and to comply with all regulations. Hence her surprise when she researched just what those regulations said. For start, they date 1947, and she pointed that out to a representative of the CDFA's Milk and Dairy Food Safety Branch. She was told that the rules have been amended many times in multiple areas during the past 60-plus years. But when she researched those modifications, they turned out to concern only frozen or soft-serve yogurt, not the regular sort, and they made no allowance at all for yogurt made from pasteurized milk. 
Turns out the core assumption behind the CDFA's rules is that all dairy products are made from raw milk, thus requiring elaborate processes that involve proper pasteurization. The white mustache, however, was making yogurt from milk that was already pasteurized. Thus, she hoped for a waiver. Absolutely not, replied the CDFA. The regulator demanded instead that she set up a grade A dairy plant, just as a large factory processing raw milk would be required to do. She was told to install, among other things, a pasteurizer with a recorder, a culture tank, and a filler, which apparently also required a mechanical capper to screw lids on jars. When Ms. Dashtaki pointed out to the CDFA inspector that all this would alter, meaning ruin, the taste of her father's artisanal yogurt, the inspector agreed. But that does not fall within the limit of the state of California's dairy regulations. Notes the article she soldiered on. A licensing officer told her that the code does not permit milk to be pasteurized a second time. So in order to comply with the order to repasteurize my already pasteurized milk, I would need to get an exemption from the head of the CDFA. Note of the magazine, thus the tale went from Kafka to Catch-22. This is not a disease unique to California. But at some point, I'm going to tell some personal stories in this program related to what I've seen uh, passing for regulation here in this state, and uh, they'll be interesting. But let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we're about to have a very fascinating talk with the legendary actor Norman Lloyd. Stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. 